Hi everyone, welcome to China in the Caribbean, a podcast about the growing economic and social ties of China and the Caribbean. Today, I'll be talking to Jared Ward about his PhD research concerning the Cold War era foreign air policies of China and the Caribbean. Too often, when you think of the Caribbean and Cold War, you think of Cuba alone. But in reality, there are other Caribbean nations at play. Did you know that China's first ever foreign aid project in the Western Hemisphere was in the Caribbean, in Guyana? We discuss a wide range of topics around this and many more, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, thank you, Jared, for agreeing to have this conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rasheem. So, when people talk about the Cold War in the Caribbean, pretty much everything is focused on Cuba, Moscow, and Washington. Some talk about Beijing, but not as much. But certainly, there's almost no discussion at all about other Caribbean countries like Grenada, like Guyana. So, could you give a background, some highlights on how the Cold War situation was in the non-Cuba Caribbean, uh, to set the stage for our conversation? Yeah. So, like you mentioned, the the most of the literature, most of the discussion was always on. Uh, Russia, Soviet Union, and China and Cuba. Um, and obviously that's because it's within this, you know, international communist movement, uh, fears of Fidel Castro, uh, especially more so the Soviet Union was really the occupation of the U.S. But um, so you get in the late 50s, uh, a lot of these Caribbean nations, obviously, you know, they're not yet independent. Um, uh, and, and you can see in places like Guyana that flirtations with Marxism, with communism had a price. I mean, if uh, a party was too leftist, it was um, frowned upon, could lead to coups, things like that. But, um, uh, you know, at that point, it was sort of uh, you don't see a lot of evidence that Caribbean leaders were really thinking of foreign relations in terms of uh, outside of how it related directly to, you know, Earlier through British, um, the relationship with Great Britain, and then later uh, when it became apparent that America was sort of uh, stepping into that role that Britain was receding from. So you do have you have Chetty Jagan uh, in Guyana, who um, in 1962 actually visited Beijing uh, and, and met Mao, um, and then a couple years later uh, he is. Um, undermined and, and Forbes Burnham obviously takes over. But so you don't, and then the same deal with Jamaica, um, where I've done a little bit of archival research on, um, in the fifties, you know, under Alexander Bustamante and, um, what they sort of thought about China. And what you see is that, uh, there wasn't a lot of consideration of, of where they fit in that sort of foreign policy. Like, uh, they were more concerned with first and foremost attaining independence, um, and then their economic interests were so tightly tied to America that uh, it was basically a given that they needed to uh, stay on America's good side. So you really you have to find a leader who 
um, that you see in Forbes Burnham, that you see in Fidel Castro, that is willing to uh, put themselves in a position where, uh, you know, they um, are able to sort of stand up against America, I guess you could say, and that they would uh, be willing to uh, invite the the scrutiny that uh, inviting relations with China would entail. I mean, it was a, it was a very big deal uh, to Washington the first time Guyana did start to open uh, at least the idea of relationships with China out of this idea of, you know, there's going to be a second Marxist government in uh, America's backyard in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, in the early, in the late 50s, early 60s, you, you seem to get more where uh, the idea of communism is still a fringe thing. It's something that there are leftist parties in these countries that that do have ties to the Soviet Union. For example, um, in 1965, there are CIA documents about Beijing facilitating uh, the travel of various um, Jamaican Marxists to come to Beijing to sort of learn about communism and mil China's military and things like that. But you don't really get it as a viable state policy until uh, a little bit later with, with Burnham and uh, with Michael Manley a little bit less so. But it was really uh, something that uh, maybe they weren't necessarily thinking of at the time, you know, still trying to just attain independence. But then also the great price that came with opening relations with a communist nation was just too great for these uh, new nations just trying to navigate this uh, conflict of the Cold War. So you mentioned Burnham a few times. I think Burnham is almost like lost the history in some sense when it comes to this discussion. And I know about Burnham only even superficially. I know, for example, that Burnham, he had a, a, a very um, big interest in the North Korea. He, he had North Koreans come to Guyana. He himself went to North Korea. He had Guyanese perform mass games in North Korea and Guyana and so forth. And then obviously he had a big interest in PRC. I, I think he was the first Caribbean leader outside of Cuba to recognize PRC back in 72. Why, what was, do you know anything about his rationale behind his deep interest in these Marxist-leaning ideologies? Yeah, so initially Burnham comes to power in uh, 1966 and uh, it was via the CIA was was intervening in Guyana to uh, the idea of Chetty Jagan taking over in Guyana was just too much for uh, Washington leaders. So initially, Burnham is actually very pro-American. Uh, he's actually getting a monthly $10,000 a month stipend from the U.S., um, you know, has business relationships with China, with uh, America, economic relations and so on. But you see this shift uh, in the end of the 1960s, which coincides with major changes in China, too, where um, it's sort of a, a perfect storm of circumstances. So on one way, I don't necessarily think I consider uh, Burnham a Marxist, per se, in terms of ideology. Um, he, he never really, uh, you know, demonstrated any sort of – a lot of these leaders uh, – it was really important to them that they would write Marxist theoretical works, all this sort of stuff. But in the late 1960s, uh, Burnham's relationship with the U.S. begins to sour a lot. So uh, in 1969, he had approached 
uh, the U.S. about re-upping this monthly stipend that he was getting. Uh, they cut it in half. And then also during this era, uh, under Richard Nixon, America enacts this economic policy nicknamed the Nixon Shock that put huge tariffs on things like sugar, bauxite coming from Guyana. So in some ways, it's becoming a necessity that he needs to um, diversify his economy. He needs to find new partners. And it especially uh, came to light when even after Chetty Jagan um, loses the election in 1966, he's still a really big figure in, in Guyanese politics and Guyanese history. So uh, he continues to be that sort of sore spot for Burnham, pressuring him. He leads the opposition in parliament, things like that. So a lot of Burnham's criticisms at home were coming from leftist ideologies. Um, Walter Rodney, for example, um, the great scholar, uh, these people were sort of souring on Burnham for having, uh, you know, he, he claimed to be non-aligned, Burnham did, but he had no relations with the Soviet Union, with China. So in some ways, these domestic political things are pushing him to, he needs to shore up his base and uh, showing his willingness to, um, you know, pursue a real non-aligned foreign policy. Uh, was important. It was important to his legitimacy. It was important uh, in, in the early 1970s, for example, Burnham in Guyana, they hosted the Non-Aligned Conference, Non-Aligned Movement Conference. So he is increasingly growing this persona that he considers himself a third world leader. And you can't really do that uh, by refusing to recognize all of these countries around the world, uh, refusing to have relationships with them. And then uh, also, at the late 1960s, Guyana was having major economic issues. So they have a housing crisis. Um, they're having uh, huge amounts of food that they need to import. And, and it's just sort of an unsustainable economy. So he's getting this pressure from, from elements within his own country. The economy is floundering. So he, of course, introduces this new policy uh, called the Feed, Clothe, and House the Nation uh, program. And it requires a lot of money, which Guyana needed to borrow from, from different sources. And uh, China became a very willing lender, whereas the U.S. is souring on Burna, Burnham. Nixon is, is souring on Burnham. Um, so in that way, I don't know if I consider him the, a Marxist in the same way that I would someone like Fidel Castro. But, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned North Korea because uh, there's a great article in, it sounds like maybe you read it by Mo Taylor about uh, North Korea and Guyana. And uh, the one hand cat clap article. Yes, exactly. It's a great article. And I think one thing that Burnham really appealed to Burnham is uh, one thing that, that North Korea and China were really adept at is uh, self-sufficiency. I mean, these are two countries that are essentially pariahs in, internationally. And uh, in North Korea, right, you have this juche idea, this idea of self-sufficiency. Same thing in China. You have this, uh, this non-white power outside the Soviet Union, outside the U.S., who had, uh, had sanctions on them, had no real standing. You know, they're not even part of the U.N. at this point. And Burnham saw very much an example of how Guyana could develop along the same way. So a lot of these concepts like... Um, mobilization of the masses, because if you lack uh, tangible resources, the sort of energies of the people, this revolutionary fervor as a way to overcome economic difficulties, I think that really appealed to him. 
uh, Burnham uh, traveled to China in 1975. And if you read sort of his different impressions from newspaper articles or things like that, uh, it's pretty clear that that the things in China that impressed him most were these um, these communes, this idea of collectivization. Uh, Burnham was moving toward nationalizing his resources at this point. So I think he saw, and Burnham was also, he was an autocratic uh, dictator, very much so. He uh, did not tolerate any sort of uh, political multiplicity in terms of parties and things like that. So I think in North Korea and China, he saw an example of a state that perhaps he could emulate and turn Guyana into a, a relevant economic political power. Interesting. So you you wrote in uh, one of the articles you sent to me that the Cuban Missile Crisis, this is kind of the same Cold War sentiment, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 19, uh, around 1962, that um, in that time the Caribbean became a flashpoint for the whole Sino-Soviet split, where, for example, uh, Beijing used the crisis as a push point to as a flashpoint to push back against Moscow's uh, ideology and foreign policy and so forth. So you have to really look at the Caribbean as an instrumental factor in how China pushed westward. And you kind of frame this as uh, the third wave of Chinese foreign policy. So could you dive into a bit more? How exactly this third wave foreign policy worked out? Uh, what exactly the Cuban Missile Crisis allowed Beijing to do? Yeah, so um, if we start with the Cuban Missile Crisis, that's sort of a, a seminal event here that um, at this point, uh, the Sino-Soviet relationship had degraded, not quite as bad as it was going to get later in the decade, but it had uh, soured since the death of Stalin and Khrushchev uh, did not get along with Mao and so on. So what happens with the Cuban Missile Crisis is Mao and China hold this up as an example that Soviet Union left Cuba uh, hanging dry, according to Mao, that this was an indication that they weren't willing to uh, push forth the revolution how they uh, purported that they would. So after this time, what you find is that uh, rather than just simply um, interacting with Caribbean nations how they were prior China began to push uh, schisms within the Caribbean. So they began to push that they were, uh, you know, Maoist parties versus Soviet parties. And uh, this is where you get a lot of parties, uh, especially in Guyana. So um, UC Guana is a really interesting figure that uh, he was part of this movement in the 60s in Guyana. And, and I was, I emailed with him a bit and he talked about how uh, at this time, Guyana, his party increasingly is beginning to uh, see China, see more uh, China's ideology is more similar to their own. And you get this sort of schism push. But so you get that. But at this point, it's sort of uh, China is only able to interact with these fringe groups that don't really have a place uh, in the formal politics of the region. So but when you get this third wave, like you mentioned, that's a really important uh, point in Chinese history because the Cultural Revolution, of course, starts in 1966, uh, and it's really you know causing chaos not only in China at home, but China's foreign relations ceased to exist at this point. They called home all the ambassadors and so on. So um, around 1968 or 1969, 
China began to understand that they needed to create a more stable environment. And mainly this is because the Soviet Union uh, was on the brink of war with China. You have this in 1968. You actually have deaths and exchanging fire along the Sino-Soviet border. So China shifts to this policy where they can no longer uh, – they're no longer at home within the communist movement in the same way because they're, they're not getting along with Eastern European states. They're not getting along with the Soviet Union. So they begin to identify themselves as a third world developing nation. And in order to do this, uh, they open up relations with dozens of new countries, new, newly formed countries in Africa, uh, in South America, Middle East, and so on. And the Caribbean was really – uh, off limits to China up until this point, but then they began to pursue this more pragmatic policy along the lines of economic development, along the lines of um, economic solidarity, third world solidarity. So being able to attract leaders like Burnham, uh, later Michael Manley, was an important part of China's ability to show that they were fighting on the side of third world causes. And this was really instrumental to them uh, joining the UN in the, in the early 1970s. It was these small countries that voted uh, that, that were really in favor of China uh, joining the UN. So um, China really shifted their their goals at that point from they were no longer trying to stoke revolution or, or support uh, militant groups or anything like that, but more so they were trying to uh, show that they were part of this third world block, that this third world block was different from the Soviet Union and from the U.S., and they saw themselves as the leader of this group. So uh, being able to get the support of countries like Guyana uh, and Jamaica and Trinidad, uh, it was really important to uh, Mao sort of being able to show that they were the leader of this and also creating more allies, more stability, and uh, just sort of tamping down all the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. So places like Guyana were a really important part of that uh, at that time. Okay, so we've discussed Burnham and Guyana so far, but what about other countries like Jamaica and Michael Manley, who was the Prime Minister of Jamaica at the time? Because Jamaica also recognized the PRC the same year as did Guyana. So what was his rationale for doing this? Yeah, so... Um, I had the chance to, a couple years ago, I went to Jamaica and I was able to read um, some cabinet documents and foreign ministry documents that were made available to me about the rationales of Michael Manley. Um, so, of course, Michael Manley comes to power in the early 1970s. And while not as extreme as Burnham, he did talk about his own versions of socialism. Um, so what you have is, again, Jamaica's economy is suffering in the early 1970s. Uh, there was also... Uh, this sentiment that these countries were sick of feeling like pawns in this Cold War, war game, right? That the, they were merely following the U.S. dictates and things like that. So uh, what you have in the case of Michael Manley in particular is, uh, I remember this quote that I liked in one of the documents where he said, Jamaica should strive to be uh, a friend to all and a satellite to none. So this idea that in order to show that they are non-aligned, that they're not just taking uh, – following the U.S.'s lead, it was important to show that they were willing to enter into a relationship with countries like China. They saw that it was an injustice that Taiwan was recognized instead of China. They also saw that China was a nuclear power. They were an up-and-coming economic power. So rather than being shut out um, of this, it was important for them to you know, see what they could uh, benefit from this relationship and show that they 
uh, had a sort of independent foreign policy. I liked how you framed the the push and the push westwards from China in terms of how. Uh, to quote, you said, if China could help a Caribbean nation so intensely situated on the front line of imperialism, its model and aid could have a transformative effect around the globe. So it was really this like, you know, exemplar case where, hey, if we can actually do this so close to America, as it were, then we, you know, we have, you know, we have uh, ground to stand on. So I'm, I'm curious of, do you have any insight into on the Chinese side in this same period about why they were actually are like how they're actually thinking about pushing inwards to uh, the Caribbean. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously China has this huge government, huge uh, foreign ministry. So you may not get the top upper echelons might not be thinking directly about uh, the Caribbean, but you do have a lot of evidence that, uh, Chiao Guanhao, who's a very up and coming at this point foreign policy leader, um, you do have evidence that they were uh, very much hands on in terms of uh, making sure that these projects that they were going to pursue in places like Guyana worked because, um, you know, it is sort of a trial run where uh, there's again, I'm thinking of a quote from a memoir of the first Chinese, um, he was a head of the trade. Uh, commission, the first trade uh, place in Guyana. And he talked about how in his meetings with these top Chinese leaders, they told him like, this is our first foreign pro- foreign aid project in the Western hemisphere. The entire third world is watching. So you better succeed. Like we need to make this. Um, so China is really, and, and like you mentioned, it's important that um, not only are they showing that they are different from the USSR and US by by uh, they can relate to the circumstances more so of these small countries, but they're also trying to um, they're trying to show that their model is applicable all over the third world. Mao had these ambitions to uh, it wasn't just to you know transform Asia. He wanted to be the leader of this world revolution that he saw happening, and the ability to gain these allies in places that were not only previously off limits to China, but also uh for all purposes were under uh you know the US's auspice like you know economically foreign policy things like that so it was really important to china uh, at this point to these sort of small countries to show that they were uh a model for them that they could help them that they could show them how to uh overcome economic issues and things like that so the caribbean definitely was uh, you know, it's poss- maybe not as big as some of these countries in Africa, these larger countries, but uh, part of China's model. So when they go to the UN, for example, in 1973, um, Deng Xiaoping uh, talks about, you know, China is a friend to all countries, small and large. We are not chauvinist. We're not hegemonic. We're not. So showing this uh, ability to work on their terms with these small countries was important to holding up that they were a different type of superpower, that they weren't the same colonial models that places like the America, like America were pursuing. Hmm. That's interesting because that's still how China frames their foreign policy attitude to our small states now. So, hmm. So the first foreign aid project you mentioned before is the Bellu clay and brick plant in Guyana, the first foreign project, foreign aid project in Western Hemisphere by China. So 
could you explain how that came about, where it's now, and I'm I'm curious, how did you actually go about investigating this entire case study? Yeah, so um, I used initially I used some Chinese memoirs of some uh, diplomats that had traveled there. So what happens is in their in night sometime actually before relations opened early 1972, they send a trade delegation to Guyana. And China's model of development, especially in terms of foreign aid, uh, and still today this is the case, is very much uh, it's influenced by what the host country wants, what the host country sees as important. So uh, they meet with Burnham and as part of his feed, clothe and house the uh, nation program, uh, they sent rice experts to sort of cultivate new forms of rice. Um, But also there's this housing crisis happening in Guyana. Um, I've seen numbers like 65, 70% of people had substandard housing. So the idea was that they could free up wood, timber, which Guyana is very rich in, uh, to sell on the international market. And they can use these rich clay reserves that they have to build brick housing. Um, but they didn't have the technical expertise. They didn't have the facilities to do it. So uh, China agrees to send a number of brick experts and they build this factory. Uh, the Bellu Clay and Brick Factory. Um, and they actually, they they even went so far as around the country in Guyana, they set up training stations to teach people how to bake bricks, how to, uh, all these sort of processes to do with it. So they build this factory. Uh, it's completed in 1976. Uh, it was a really big deal. It was a almost a flagship uh, project for China in the region, but also Burnham was there uh, when the signing off happened, all this stuff. Uh, but it never quite reaches potential, not only in terms of the bricks that are produced, but um, I had talked to a manager, a Guyanese manager who was in charge of this factory. And it just, uh, there were issues. He actually, he told me that um, he accused, there was just sort of malfeasance where there just wasn't, they weren't managing the uh, the project properly when China left. So uh, by 1978, the factory had actually closed completely. And this is in some ways an embarrassment also for China. So they send in more people uh, to try to rehabilitate it. And they do, and they uh, get it going again. But then it's just sort of this on again, off again process. And then uh, I believe it was in the early 1990s. Since then, it's just been left um, abandoned, that it, it never quite um, provided jobs like it said it was going to do. It never quite uh, produced bricks like it thought it was going to do. Um, so in many ways, uh, China saw this as a failure. And, and even in the early 1990s, China again agreed to offer more money to rehabilitate it, and they just couldn't do it. So um, yeah, so it just sort of stalled and stagnated from there. So early on, when when China was getting more involved in Guyana, you know, somewhat of Jamaica. What was the U.S. perception of this? Yeah, so um, initially, uh, especially the relationship with Burnham, uh, the U.S. was very anxious about it. They were very, um, there's a lot of CIA documents where they, they are very adamant about they can't allow Burnham to go socialist and his opening to China is showing this. Uh, also, this perception of, the danger of inviting China so close to America, uh, having people there and things like that. Uh, it, so um, 
a lot of CIA documents actually deal with Burnham and Manley together when they talk about the China issue. And they see Manley as sort of less ideological, less uh, intent on a close relationship with China, but they very much worried about Burnham forging a military alliance with China. Um, it was definitely really heavy on the mind of the U.S. at the time that they uh, wanted to avoid these close ties that were apparently happening, uh, these economic ties, these military ties. Um, so they were very mindful of it. They were very nervous about it, just kind of like they were with a lot of the region uh, in that era, the Cold War. They would constantly reference, we can't have another Cuba. We can't have another Cuba. Um, so yeah, they were definitely watchful. They were nervous. They were aware of what's happening. A lot of the details of information I get is actually from American documents where they, you know, the numbers on the deals and, you know, who's arriving when and things like that. So they were very uh, involved in watching. So having studied the early, the, like the literally very beginnings of Caribbean-China relations, how do you see now the current involvement of the BRI the current modern Chinese, uh, current modern Caribbean governments, the current situation in the U.S. How do you see all that actually playing out now in the Caribbean basin going forward? Yeah, so I mean, the BRI, BRI, like you mentioned, immensely important, and China does see uh, Caribbean nations as part of this maritime Silk Road. This idea that uh, uh, places like Guyana are important as this bridge into the Brazilian economy into uh, forging close relations with Venezuela, things like that. Um, yeah, China, I mean, I would say right now, China is at its peak in terms of uh, Caribbean investments. You just have all over the region, right? Roads and bridges and airports. Um, and in China's mind, uh, you know, I don't think they necessarily have, there's a lot of this uh, talk about, you know, China taking over ports and turning them into military bay. I don't think that's on the minds of China, but I do think that they see the economic and business opportunities. You have a lot of companies that are uh, involved in the region and they see that the Caribbean is a very useful uh, bridge sort of between some of these South American states. They have a close relationship, particularly Brazil, and then access to the U.S. market. So St. Martin, they're heavily involved in. The Bahamas, China's heavily involved in. Um, so it's definitely uh, at a level, obviously, Mao's China didn't have these sort of resources. They didn't have this sort of clout. Um, and, you know, from my understanding, it seems like Caribbean leaders uh, do see, you know, the BRI is a useful way to, you know, there's fears of debt trap. There's fears of things like that. But it is a useful way to get money when the U.S. has decidedly pulled back, right, in recent years where, um, you do get, you know, Pompeo might visit and, and talk about things. But as far as offering a viable alternative, like, are they going to build this $700 million road in Jamaica or things like that? From the U.S., I see a lot more where they're just warning them to avoid China and less so providing an alternative uh, to not seek out relationships with China. So, um yeah, I mean, I think it'll be a really, really important uh, national security foreign policy thing going forward is how um, how China is able to get this greater presence in the region. But then also, you know, whether the U.S. is able to counter that and and uh, it, it doesn't seem like in recent years, the U.S. is more involved in the Middle East and, you know, the Asian pivot under Obama, things like that. So, um, 
yeah, it's a really interesting sort of triangular relationship happening down there. Yeah, it, <laughs> it definitely really is pretty interesting. So thank you, Jared, for having this conversation. Where can people find to contact you? Uh, so I have a Twitter um, that they can contact me. Uh, I believe it's J-A underscore Ward. I also have a website. My email address is uh, jward at ndc.edu. So uh, any of those work uh, in terms of contacting me. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rashid. Por la mañana me despierta el primer rayo del sol que me invita a levantarme. Me dice que el dolor de ayer pronto tiene que acabarse. Por la mañana me despierta el primer viento del sur que me exige levantarme. Estás a punto de acabarte Me invita a caminar Me invita a caminar Me invita a caminar Me invita a caminar Siempre con prisa Ya no hay sonrisa